Welcome to Curious and Candid, conversations with those in pursuit of more. Today's guest is the author of Falling in Love with the Process. Today's guest is Dustin Waite. Dustin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So Dustin, we're going to jump right into things. I've got four questions I like to call the conversational starter questions. These are four questions I like to ask all of my guests just to kind of get the conversational ball rolling, so to speak. So the first uh, question I've got for you and I'm curious about is how do you start your day? Is there any specific routine or ritual you like to stick to on most days and most mornings? Well, recently in the last couple of years, my day starts with a beautiful female staring me down, wanting me to help her satisfy her every need. And she is covered in white fur and has four paws. And her name is Tula. And I don't know if you've ever had a boxer, but apparently boxers just love to stand on top of you with all of their muscle as sturdy as they can. And that that is every morning. That is how I wake up by her just staring me in the face. So then I get up and feed her, give her her meds. And uh, uh, I I actually recently, I haven't drank coffee in the last over a year now. So I used to have, you know, you get the coffee routine, get it going. But now I maybe do some chai, maybe do another type of tea. Um, I am a runner too. So occasionally I'll try to get up for some morning runs. Uh, there's a couple, of, I live in Sacramento now, and there's a couple of really good uh, running groups in the area. And so sometimes I'll try to make it up for one of those early runs if I can, but. Excellent. Uh, what's the reasoning or the impetus behind you taking the, the coffee break over the last year? Was there something really specific or, or not necessarily? Uh, yeah. Um, honestly, it, it was probably something even though I love coffee, I mean, I literally in, in both my books talk about how much I've loved coffee in my life. And, but I've always kind of known that it's that one thing that I, I might need to cut out at some point. Like, you know, everyone talks about getting the coffee jitters or having the crash. And, and I, for me, not to be too, you know, graphic with it, but to be pretty much blunt, but it was the stomach issues that just constantly, well, you know, it would be, it would be okay. But if all of a sudden I had three or four cups in a day and I didn't eat anything and, and I, I really started getting some weird stomach and even honestly, some kind of like painful bladder issues, things. And, and I, I don't know if people talk about that enough, but that was, that was enough to make me finally say, Hey, let's, and I had cut it out, you know, for a week or a, a couple of weeks here and there in my life and then started back up. But this time just sort of stuck. And, and honestly, like, I do miss it. There's definitely a social component to coffee. Um, I also don't drink alcohol. I haven't drank alcohol in seven years. That might be something we talk about later. But uh, so I've kind of taken away the two primary things that people use to socialize alcohol and coffee. But uh, but it turns out, you know, you can still find ways to to hang out with people and 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 be around others. And so so I've been. Uh, yeah, I've been I've really enjoyed that. I've kind of gotten broken free of that coffee routine. So. Yeah. And so then, uh, has that helped your, your stomach issues and all that? And I, I really, really appreciate you being candid, uh, you know, with that, because I've had stomach issues. I don't drink coffee or alcohol myself, but you know, I've had stomach issues and there's a lot of people out there, especially in our, in our culture, in our country that have 
all kinds of stomach issues. Uh, so has it really helped uh, in, in that area, cutting out the coffee, Dustin? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's the it's the one thing that I I think I can make like an absolute direct connection to like a morning that I didn't drink coffee, even if I was just sporadically taking a day off. That day was just a little bit better with stomach stuff. And sure, you get like the the little caffeine withdrawal. So you get the headaches when you kind of cut it out. And, and that's a big thing when people stop drinking coffee, they get really bad headaches, like they get these bad withdrawals. So they they think they need to do it. And that's, I mean, I hate to say it, but that's that's the caffeine addiction telling you you need this thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think just the increased or decreasing the acidity that I was taking in from the coffee uh, has just yeah made made stomach stuff and and eating habits just a little bit better. So excellent. All right. Um, now we're gonna get into your book, uh, your your uh, uh, most recent book that you authored. Um, so the next question is, what's your favorite book? And you know, for an author, that might be a hard question to limit it to one. So please feel free to share as many as you'd like. And then if you do listen to podcasts you have a favorite or go-to podcast. So favorite book, favorite podcast. What do you, what do you got for us on, on that Dustin? I typically, when someone asks me that, uh, the book I go to, um, for nonfiction is it's called destiny of the Republic. And it's about, um, the assassination of James A. Garfield. And what I like about it is that it's kind of, you know, it's a historical nonfiction, and the way they weave in just other history happenings at the time and how that played a role with this particular assassination. You know, I, I forget the numbers, you know, there's like seven or eight presidents who have been assassinated or whatever. And, and just how this one was, it was just such a unique time in our, it was late 1800s. And, you know, the tech, the medical technology of the time was was that the messier a doctor, the better he was, the bloodier his his apron was. He was if you got in there and dug deep, but like they didn't, you know, they didn't use antiseptic. They didn't use any sort of cleanliness. And and um, and it's, it's actually kind of the history of a guy named James Lister. I believe that's his name, James um, Lister, which you probably recognize from Listerine, because this is the guy who sort of developed you know, modern day antiseptic practices, but he was seen as this like quack, like, oh, we don't need to clean things. And, and, you know, they kind of talk about how if, if it had been two or three years difference of that technology, how so many people would have survived just basic medical things, including James Garfield and kind of how that played a role in determining how to treat him. Um, anyway, so that was, that's a, that was a fun book. I think from a, from a fiction standpoint, some people might roll their eyes at this of me being a, a Dan Brown fan, but uh, but I one of his early books, um, Deception Point, uh, was which I just I I I think the Dan Brown series and of uh, you know the Robert Langdon storyline that he has in some of his books, it's it's entertaining. It's a good writer, uh, good writing. Um, and but before his whole Angels and Demons and Da Vinci Code blow up, he had a couple other books, and one was called Deception Point. Uh, and I think just because it has some cool geology, it talks, it has like a meteorite storyline to it. It was fun. Cool. Yeah. Uh, do you listen to podcasts or not? Oh, I, I do, but not with any sort of regularity. I, I hate, I know the irony of being on a podcast and saying that I don't listen to podcasts. 
Uh, I have not, I have just not got on that bandwagon in terms of having it be part of a regular routine. I do enjoy it. Like if I get on a road trip though, I'll try to download a few here and there. Um, like I, I honestly, I couldn't even, there, even one that I know I enjoyed that had uh, Jason Bateman and a few, few other actors in his genre. I really enjoyed that. I can't even remember the name of that one right now. I'll have to look that up for you. That's cool. Now yeah. I want to ask you, um, kind of like a follow-up to the the favorite book. Now, um, you know, as an author, as a writer yourself, um, and it can be, you know, fiction, nonfiction, whatever, just, you know, when you, when you pick up a, when you pick up a book and you start reading it, first of all, uh, you know, what draws you or attracts you to a book? Um, and then second of all, when you decide, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to start reading this book. I'm going to, I'm going to check it out. What what pulls you in? What draws you in? What makes you finish a book, if that kind of makes sense? Uh, draws you in. So this is a random thing, but the guy's name is Joseph Lister. I just remembered that. <laughs> um, what draws me, but it draws me into a book. Uh, honestly, just something that I don't have to go back and forth and feel like I missed something, which might seem that I make it seem like I'm a pretty basic reader. Like I, if I, if I get two or three chapters in and I already feel like I kind of need to reread chapter one to really understand. And, and it's not that I don't appreciate like a good intertwined story, but, but yeah, I, I get, I kind of get frustrated with that. That'll make me probably not finish a book if, cause I, you know, admittedly, um, you know, I, I, I will set a book down for weeks at a time. Like, even if I'm interested in it, I, I just have, you know, we go back and forth, I go on a roller coaster of those, those habits. And so if I jump back into it and if I can't even with a brief review, really, really get, you know, get caught up. Um, yeah, that'll, that'll kind of, that'll kind of frustrate me a little bit, but honestly, I just, um, but also recommendations, um, I think that helps. Like I, my current partner, my girlfriend, I pretty much every book she's recommended to me, I have picked up and read and mostly because it creates a reading community. So if I read a book that she's read, I, to be honest with you, I, I don't really care if it's, you know, you, young adult or historical fiction, it now gives us a common thread to talk about and bond over. And, uh, and I think I kind of appreciate that social component to it than more the specific book itself. So Excellent. Love that. Okay. So over the last year, Dustin, what life lesson have you been taught or have you learned? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And maybe uh, a lot of times in life we have to be uh, retaught, you know, lessons or uh, what have you. So maybe it's something that you learned a long time ago, but maybe just over the last year, you've been reminded of that lesson, kind of however you want to take that question, uh, you you take it. This is this might be an oldie or but a goodie in terms of a life lesson. But yeah, retaught just some patience, um, patience and things there. There are just some things that are out of our control. And um, that that spawned from, you know, we talked about my stomach issues and health issues a little bit with with coffee. But my partner, she she absolutely had some some weird stomach stuff hit her about a year ago. And, and in fact, it kind of started when we were on a vacation. Um, so I, you know, terrible for her, obviously to, to have to kind of 
start dealing with, I mean, she's had to rethink everything she, she eats. Absolutely everything. I mean, it, just think about the, if you had a main food or a thing that you love the most and you had to stop eating that for a year, like you would be frustrated. You would be angry. Um, and it got all the way to where she was, she was going on these elimination diets, trying to figure out, you know, really what, what was the the culprit. And, you know, I was the bystander, but man, I listening to, you know, doctor after doctor say, well, we don't know, or there's nothing wrong. The tests say everything's fine, but clearly something isn't. And I mean, she even went as far as did a, like a two week liquid only amino acid diet where that is all she consumed was liquid amino acids. And I mean that, (laughs) and so again, way worse for her. But for me, as her partner, trying to be supportive, try to, you know, manage my expectations with it, too. Um, You know, we were planning trips like while this was kind of starting, we had planned a, actually a, a trip to Hawaii. It was kind of like a Christmas gift. I'd found a, a good deal on it. And, you know, it was even two or three months down the road. And I was like, you'll be OK, right? Like we can eat. We'll be able to eat good food in Hawaii. Hawaii came and she was definitely still dealing with uh, some things. And let's just fate like that. That makes a, a vacation a very difficult trip because you're spending money, you're spending time, all these things that we do that are supposed to give us a reprieve from the monotony of regular life. And even that was affected. And, and so um, thankfully, she was able to slow and steady kind of piece together something that works for her, both with a community of people she found online and, you know, finding a couple of doctors that actually were like, you know, I believe you like something is wrong. So we, we got to look beyond normal things. And, and so as a bystander to all of that for the last year, I I wasn't perfect. I definitely had some times where I, I made it about myself and, you know, cause I was getting, I was getting frustrated with, you know, not being able to do things or whatever. Um, And, and all, again, all of that was just out of my control and trying to be, like I said, as patient and supportive when I could for her. So, and it was a struggle. still learning how to do it the best way. So. All right. Um, Last uh, conversational starter question, Dustin, then we're going to dive into your, your story, uh, your backstory, your childhood and all that. Do you have, a favorite quote, mantra, or word? Ooh. Um, an old one for me, it still pretty applies, uh, is effort and intentions. I actually have that tattooed on my body somewhere, but I'm not going to take my shirt off to show it to you right now. And the reason behind that is just a old story of mine from right after college. I was living in Santa Barbara, California, and I was at a bar. And I was sitting next to some older gentleman who, you know, he and I were just drinking and, and he went on to just share his life story with me. And this gentleman had, you know, this theme of effort and intentions in life about, you know, it was this cliche story of a guy who thought he had everything he wanted, but it really wasn't. And, you know, he made all this money in his, in his life, but it, it it didn't provide him happiness. He was married to what he thought was the, the perfect, you know, trophy wife woman, but obviously that fell apart when his business and lost fell apart and he, and he lost all his money and, you know, his kids left him and he had all these terrible things happen. And, you know, it made him rethink his life from a perspective of like, what, 
what are your intentions? You know, like evaluate, like, do you have good intentions or bad intentions for every decision you make? And then evaluate, like, what level of effort are you willing to put in for those? And, you know, it's not a meant, meant to be how you, you know, that you need to put all your effort into every intention. It's it's meant to show you, hey, maybe some things you can reconfigure where you spend your time and resources to uh, if they're not as important to you. And so that story at that time was so impactful. And I, and I will admit that I was kind of think it was my first tattoo. And so I was like, I needed something extra to go with it. So I added these words to it. And I, I sort of have adopted it. And I, I so I won't, it was not my initial mantra, but, uh, but I, I've, I've appreciated that I've kind of taken it under my wing a little bit from that gentleman that night. So excellent. Yeah. Those are, those are two great words, effort and intentions. I think, uh, you can, uh, uh, accomplish a lot in life if you put forth effort and you know uh, you live uh, with intention or with intention intentionality. So um, super cool there. All right, now uh, Dustin, we're gonna kind of uh, transition into your 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 backstory, man. We're gonna take a a deep dive into uh, who Dustin Way is, kind of starting from the be beginning and just work our way through your evolution uh, process and story. So um, I want to start with the beginning. So uh, would you just kind of share with myself and all the listeners where you actually physically grew up um, and then kind of just paint that picture of what your childhood was like, uh, you know, relationship with your parents, you have siblings, were you involved in sports, you know, were you, uh, you know, athletic, were you a nerd, kind of just like paint that entire picture, picture for us in terms of childhood up uh, through high school. And then kind of once you, uh, unpack your high school years, let's just stop there. Um, because I'll kind of transition us into, uh, the next phase of our conversation. If that's cool with you. Sure. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Uh, I was, and if you're born in Cedar Rapids, the next question everyone asks is, were you born at Mercy or St. Luke's hospital? Uh, so I was born in Mercy. I was a Mercy baby. Uh, June 9th, it was my birthday. I was born on a Saturday. How much detail do we need here? Um, <laughs> you, you go as deep as and as detailed as you want, Dustin. Yeah. We I we grew up on uh, the southwest side of town, um, and and I always kind of sometimes butcher, but I believe it's called Rolling Green was the the name of the neighborhood. But it's not like we ever had signs up like you see in bigger cities of the names of the neighborhoods. But supposedly that was the name, um, and. And yeah, I think we, I had two older brothers and a younger sister. We were all D's. So it was Derek, Devin, Dustin, and Dawn. And my dad's name is Dan. My mom's name is Jeannie. So we don't really know what happened with the J there. So they were, they were going to name my sister a J name, but, you know, keep the girls J's and boys D's. But we don't know what happened. Uh, we were on that southwest side where, you know, we were there before pretty much everything else was there. You know, Westdale Mall was there that was that was a big deal but the the movie theater hadn't been built yet the you know i wanted the walmart hadn't been built yet the a bunch of housing additions around there hadn't been built yet you know something some old school people from that area remember there used to be a huge strawberry field right off the highway that you could go every season and pay a few dollars and get a basket and walk around and pick strawberries and i mean that's that's all gone now that's all housing um, and so just to kind of watch that whole thing develop, it is kind of crazy. Like there, there used to be like, everyone remembers the old rundown barn with a silo still right there in town that has now 
been wiped clean. And like I said, that's the movie theater. And then they built the Culver's restaurant and then Texas Roadhouse and then all that whole thing along Edgewood. And and so I I don't want to age myself too much, but I do, you know, even at 39, I have this life experience of witnessing like this huge transformation of of that area. Um, And so, yeah, and we did, uh, you know, to oversimplify it, sports was definitely a big part of our our upbringing. We, we were a sports family, uh, primarily basketball and baseball. So my brother, my siblings and sister, um, all siblings, I should say brothers and sisters. Uh, we all played AAU basketball. We played for the Salvation Army team. My sister played for the Panthers team, which was the, the best female team in the area. The Salvation Army teams, we were to not to our own horn. We were probably some of the best, uh, you know, men's bas- AAU basketball teams in the state. We, we won multiple state titles and went on to national basketball tournaments. In fact, that was a majority of our summer vacations were traveling for weekend basketball tournaments. And every summer, if it wasn't going to the state tournament or the national tournament, um, you know, there was something else going on somewhere. And, and that, that was kind of it. I mean, we, I was also in Cub Scouts for like a year or so, but then there was a moment where my, my, my parents kind of gave me an ultimatum of like basketball or Cub Scouts. And, you know, Michael Jordan was at the height of his game at that time. So, I mean, I was choosing basketball. Like that was, that was it. Like I, I could tell you every pair of shoe and clothing that came out in an East Bay magazine, we had that thing memorized. And so I, yeah, that, that's, that was it. We, we were, we were Catholic. So that, that was another component to our, to our childhood. Um, I went to St. Ludmilla's Catholic elementary school, which unfortunately uh, did close down in the last few years. So that's, that's no longer a, a thing that we can kind of go back to and reminisce there. They were called the um, St. Ludmilla's Vikings was our, was our mascot there. But uh, went K through five there and, and, you know, being Catholic was definitely part of our, of our lives. Um, Now in later years, I've learned that maybe actually believing all of the things that might come with believing some of the Catholic beliefs might not have actually been our thing. We, we might've kind of been there just for the community side of things. I, I will say though, that I personally I probably, I not probably, I believed I was a big firm believer in a lot of the Catholic beliefs in my, in my younger years. And, um, and that was shown in the fact that I went on to actually teach CCD classes. I attended Catholic youth rallies across the country. Um, and, and I don't have I, those actual events and those, those, community things, those still are very positive memories, I think, for me, even though I've since sort of shifted away from from that traditional religious feeling in my in my my life these days. Uh, But yeah, that played a role in my upbringing, for sure, especially because St. Ludmilla's through the Kolach Festival every year. And if you don't know what a Kolach Fest or Kolach is, it's a little pastry with some fruit in the middle. Uh, so there's a big Czech heritage in Cedar Rapids. There's actually the, the National Czech and Slovak Museum in the country is in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And and our church and school was just up the road from that. And so we would they would make like 20,000 kolaches every year for this festival. And because it was always the, the second weekend in June, the festival would fall on my June 9th birthday. 
So it was like I this whole festival was just my birth. Now, sometimes I think that my parents got off the hook easy because they could just be like, here's 10 bucks, go get some tickets, go play some games. And we, we made you, a, we brought you to a festival for your birthday. And, but uh, so that's why that's always kind of a, that was a connection for me growing up. Um, yeah, yeah, the sports thing, you know, playing ba- baseball, basketball. Like my dad was our coach um, for for a lot of our our teams, which I know is is kind of a common story for some people. But also, if you realize that that it was probably was less common for more people who played sports. Like you know, there was only two or three coaches for every team, and and my dad is in most of those old photos. You know, you you know the baseball ones with the glove. You know, the kid with his knee up in the air and the glove, but. Uh, that's a fun pose um but yeah my dad was very involved in in making sure that we we knew how to play sports for and and it showed we my brothers and i and my sister we we were pretty good comparatively to to other kids in the city at that age so so i have to that is that is one thing my dad was able to to pass down to us for sure okay now i think it's cool because i'm uh uh 36 you said you're 39 so we we uh we're we're kind of we're we're in that same generation. So um a couple of things I want to touch on. Uh first of all, uh I want to touch touch on uh like books. So for me growing up, um you know, two two uh books, uh one's an author, but Matt Christopher sports books, I, I consumed those as a kid. So I want to ask you if you are familiar with Matt Christopher and did you read those books? And then second of all, the Goosebump series was another uh, group of books that I consumed as a kid. Um, and then um, were you a uh, partake, partaker in uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when you were growing up? So can you answer those three for me? Because I'm curious because obviously I grew up in Iowa, we're, we're in the same generation, so there's gonna be a lot of similarities. Uh, but with those three, did you, uh, did you partake in, in in any of those three, uh, Dustin? So you said Matt Christopher was that his name? The- yeah, Matt Christopher wrote uh, like kids uh, sports books. Oh man, you know i i don't have I don't have that memory. That is not something that I that I looked into. Um, but the Goosebumps, absolutely. That was, I if if I I mean I don't my my memory of that time is a little vague. Uh, for whatever reasons, but in terms of if I had a book that I probably tried to get caught up on most of the goosebump stories, even though honestly, I probably couldn't tell you the details of it, of any single one of them. I, I think I remember the one that stuck with me was a goosebumps story about it was, um, it was like a, a kid who had to, his, his mirror image became a real boy in his real life. So it was like his twin, but it was his mirror image. And I think that connected with me cause I'm left-handed. And so like, I'm going to spoiler alert this to you, but they, they figure out who's who, because, you know, the mirror image is the one guy is right-handed versus left-handed. And, and so I always, that, that always connected with me a little bit. Um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles though. uh, Yeah. I mean, yeah, I won't, I won't claim that I was an avid fan, but we, I liked those movies when they came out. I liked the original ones. That was pretty good. Yeah. I could never, I know that was one of the better arcade games, you know, that people played. Teen- I was terrible at video games. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 I, my, my brother was more of the video game person than myself. Um, now, uh, 
in terms of, of books and reading and all of that, is that something that was a huge part of your childhood and upbringing? And if so, um, who instilled that in you? And if not, that's fine too. But I'm just curious because obviously we're going to get into your uh, being an author and writing books and all that here later on in your story. But talk about when did the reading and the writing and kind of all of that come into your being and existence and who influenced that if there was an influence? I got to take the ladder of it. It really wasn't that part of my my upbringing. And that's something that I kind of, I won't say I'm ashamed of that any, of any means now that I'm a writer, but I do look back on on my childhood and some of those cliche books, not cliche, but like regular books that supposedly everybody read. I just don't remember having those be on a reading list for me for whatever classes. Um, so I, I do have, there's just some classic novels out there that I, I don't have, I've, I haven't read. In fact, it's, that has been on this sort of like new year's resolution list for me for many years of like, let's go make a list of some of those famous books that people always reference for so many. Th and, and finally, like when I finally went back in my early twenties and read like 1984, you know, that was a book, George Orwell, that clearly i mean yeah if i would have read that as like a 15 16 17 year old kid that that probably would have influenced me in some pretty amazing ways um and but then you know finally getting around to reading it in my 20s it influenced me in probably different ways because you know we develop into the type of humans that we become and and you know it's always <laughs> to not use too many pop culture reference but it's like the back to the future 2 reference like when old Biff steals the time machine and they have to go back and they think if they just go forward and get it, they can't, they have to go back behind when, before he gets the almanac to his older self. So it's, you know, it's at what point did we start our diversion of maybe becoming a different version of ourselves, a better version of ourselves, And, and so I, I do kind of wonder if I had included more of those types of influential titles at a younger age, how that would have, you know, evolved. And, now, I will say in terms of influence, I don't know if she ever takes this as a negative thing or a positive, but one of my teachers, Miss um, Ehrenberger, uh, I always remember this because I I kind of cliche would say that I wanted to be a lawyer. I probably didn't want to be a lawyer. I just probably said it because be saying you want to be a lawyer sounds like something fancy you want to say. And, and I remember telling her this, you know, it was in some class, you know, I forget the class we we're in and. And she just bluntly was like, well, then you're going to need to start reading and writing more. And like you like if you don't think a lawyer is going to spend most of their time reading and writing, you're, you're crazy, you know, and 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 so I don't know if she sees that as like maybe she was talking down to my dreams or not. But really, she was talking some reality into me at the time. And 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 it probably made me rethink, you know, like what I want to pursue. And and ultimately when I, when I decided to go to college, I definitely didn't pursue law or politics or anything. Um, and, and, but in terms of um, writing though, I, I did kind of, I, I did some journaling for sure. Like not too excited. I actually, I got more into that in, in my college years and early twenties were like, like handwritten journals in terms of thoughts, ideas, reflections, um, but I, I sporadically kind of had a little journal going in high school as well. Um, nothing to the extent of like massive, you know, completely fully bound books of notes and dates and all that. But, uh, 
but yeah, I think that spark was in me a little bit at that younger age as well. What, what did you, if you don't mind me asking Dustin, what did your parents do in terms of jobs or uh, careers uh, when you were growing up? So dad worked at Quaker Oats. So he was, uh, he was in the loading docks down there at Quaker Oats. He's been there. He was there for 42 years. He retired a few years ago. Um, and I, and I think if I'm getting the story right, this is crazy to kind of give you an idea of blue collar work and people, but even at 42 years, my dad still wasn't the most senior person in his division. Um, there, there are people, 50 year people there that, um, you know, a crazy kind of last few years of his, of his working environment, you know, he worked a, a day shift. He had a regular shift because one of his employee, you know, his coworkers, just really enjoyed working the the night and the overnight shifts. You know, he, that's, that was his lifestyle. And that guy had the seniority. And for some reason, in the last few years, that guy just said, eh, I want to work the day shift. And so after, you know, literally decades and decades of these people working the same, my, my dad, you know, up in his upper years was told, you know, it was just like somebody filling out a, a weekly time request thing. And it was, he was just told, oh, you got to start working these other hours. I think that was an impetus to him to dis- probably retire at that point. Um, uh, if I, if I retold that story correctly, but, uh, but yeah, he was there for all I can remember. And my mom uh, used to work at Vigor Tone, which was an old, and I'll be honest with you. I can't even remember what they used to do, but she used to, they used to like print and cut some paper. That was like the department she was in. I might be butchering that, but she ultimately went back to school and um, got her RN and became a nurse. And so she worked in occupational health uh, nursing with Rockwell Collins, actually. Um, she got on with their team there. And I think she was there 17 or 18 years before she finally retired. And now she's she's been retired for a year now. So Awesome. Yeah. Um, now, high school, uh, let's touch on that just a little bit before we move on, um, Dustin. Uh, obviously it sounds like sports was, uh, your life, like it was for myself and a lot of, let's just be, be, you know, candid. A a lot of people grow up, uh, especially, you know, in the Midwest, especially if you're from, I'm from a smaller town, Cedar Rapids is a bigger city, at least in Iowa. Um, but a lot of us grow up, uh, and sports is life, right? Um, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But, um, in terms of high school, uh, did you continue to play basketball and baseball throughout high school? And you mentioned kind of, you know, uh, in passing that you thought maybe at some point you wanted to be a lawyer, uh, but you didn't go to college to, to, to do that. Um, but when you were kind of maybe junior, senior year, starting to think about, you know, uh, post high school and what you wanted to do and be quote unquote, when you grew up, what do you want to study in college? Like, were there some other thoughts outside of just being a lawyer? Were you thinking like, you, you wanted to be like a professional athlete. Like when I was a younger person, I thought I was going to be a pro athlete in like three different sports. Like just kind of walk us through some of your thoughts and, and your mindset in terms of, you know, Dustin Waite as a teenager in high school, getting ready to graduate, doing the sports thing. Like just, just walk us through a little bit of, of that. So we have a, a snapshot of your, your mindset at that point in your life. Oh, you hit the head on the nail. I mean, I, I thought I was going to be a professional basketball player, hands down. And, and as much as like, and I'll dive into other stuff too, but like, it's kind of difficult to describe that to people because I think on some level, maybe I knew that was kind of a pipe dream at some point. I mean, I, 
we were good. I was a good basketball player. Like I like I wasn't the greatest, but I was good. And so I had this this thought that like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, bless my dad's heart for teaching us everything about sports. But, you know, that maybe sometimes where the conversation ended. And so we we you know, I probably did like that's that's what I just thought. OK, that'll happen at some I'll get a scholarship somewhere. And but also at the same time, I also kind of knew like, all right, there's some better players than me and and that might not happen. But I never filled that void in in my thought process. That's why I said I I said I wanted to be a lawyer because I don't know what's the best. What do you say? What's what are prominent professions, lawyers and doctors? And like, well, if I'm not going to be a basketball player, I'll be a lawyer, a doctor, like all the all the things in the children's books that we read. And. And so, but yeah, I, I definitely continued sports into all four sports, basketball, baseball, track, uh, football. And so I was actually the captain of all my sports teams with the exception of baseball. But, uh, you know, I was a starter, played outfield in baseball. Uh, but yeah, uh, captain and starter and all Metro, all conference in football, basketball, baseball or track and field. Um, that pretty much took. A majority of my time but it was high school so somehow i had 72 hours in a day to fill and you know i i look back on that time it's like not only did i have sports sometimes twice a day but then there was lifting weights then i was also in plays and musicals and i was actually also in show choir and even my senior year i was voted best male dancer of my class yeah Still not sure if that was because they were making fun of me, but we pulled off that Casey and the Sunshine Band medley like it was nobody's business. We had that choreography down cold, but I was doing that, you know, while, you know, we we qualified for for state and football um, and and, you know, just just keeping busy with all of that and trying to do all the extracurriculars and, you know, on on paper absolutely just the all american boy right like all that and and you know even i think i finished 11th in my class out of a couple hundred kids too had like a three nine something something gpa just but even that i look back on and i i probably i probably did it more for the great like i i wanted the a than the the knowledge you know i wish i would have seen school all education for like how do i actually you know, learn something new, some new skill. I was probably a little more concerned with making sure it was an A, you know, than not. But hindsight's always twenty twenty when you're thirty nine versus seventeen. So, okay. Now, uh, one one more question that I I want to ask you, um, because it's something that I experienced uh, growing up in small town Iowa. Uh, do you feel like you were you kind of grew up in a in a in a bubble and kind of were sheltered? in in your childhood and and in your teen years and then when you went off to college and started kind of getting into your 20s and stuff do you feel like your eyes were kind of open so to speak like wow like maybe you know maybe i was off on this you know and maybe what mom and dad told me over here isn't necessarily what i believe like do you feel like you kind of grew up in that bubble or or do you feel like you had a lot of exposure to a lot of life when you're younger oh absolutely Absolutely. And, and, and I don't, I know this can sound like it's a negative thing, but I don't necessarily think it was, but yeah, we, we had a bubble. It, it, I think the bigger bubble for me 
And again, I, I want to, you know, tread lightly how I discuss this, but like what was my religious upbringing, my Catholic. I think that bubble had more influence over me than just small town Iowa, which Cedar Rapids is the second largest city in the state. But let's just face it, like it is small town compared to every other city and state in the country. So by definition, yeah, that was kind of a bubble too. Um, but uh, yeah, I think my my relationship with my religion growing up influenced me so heavily. And when I when I did kind of start to pierce that veil and look outside of of life, outside of the the, the perspective of a Catholic, um, and and I decided that life away from Catholicism was going to be a better choice for me. After I made that decision uh, that came in college, you know, I was actually still teaching CCD, which is Catholic courses for people who don't go to Catholic school uh, in college. And I kind of had a bad experience with um, sort of a local youth director that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I know she was uh, trying to to communicate, you know, the way they wanted things done, you know, in, in their diocese. And it just, I don't know, chalk it up to me just getting older or being a little more curious or being like, maybe it was never meant to be for me. You know, and that's kind of my belief now is that this was just not a belief system that wasn't supposed to be my life. And I mean, even though it was, I mean, I would do full masses from, I would deliver readings from memory, scriptures from memory back in high school. And and so when I got into my 20s, I mean, I definitely I had the whole spectrum. So just like anybody who kind of decides or figures out that maybe something from their past wasn't the best for them, I was mad. I definitely went through an angry phase. I was like, I blame I absolutely blame my parents for how dare they bring me up in this thing and not, you know, not give me other choices, not give me other options um, all the way to the full spectrum of like, listen, I want everyone to be able to to have faith in something that makes sense to them. If Catholicism and true Catholicism is the thing that gives you that while also not infringing on other people's beliefs, which is a staple, I believe of, I think should, should exist. Um, that's awesome. And for me, that just, that didn't have staying power, you know, even though I, I ch it was kind of like me going for the grades as opposed to the knowledge. I probably went hardcore into the Catholicism because I was just like, this is what you do, you know, like might as well. But when I when I really started asking myself, is this something that I truly believe, um, you know, I, I had to step away from it. And so that that bubble, I, you know, I love the community side of it. Every every person who's a part of that church that I grew up with is is a huge influence on my life. And I just I sometimes wish that we could separate that component of it from some of the more indoctrinated, you know, old school teachings that come with a lot of organized, basically most organized religion. So, um, you know, and I so, so to label like I don't. I don't know if I'd call myself agnostic or atheist or anything like that, but just, you know, be a good person, right? Be a good person. And and I think we can, I think we can have these things without a lot of the negative components that come from them. And, um, and it, it was actually a trip in college. I took to Vatican city. We went to Rome 
and I, I was starting to question everything. Uh, so I had, a, I, it was a Roman archeology span class I took. And so literally like we're, we're, I'm about to go into the Vatican. And, you know, this was during my cutoff jean short phase where, you know, they weren't too short of cutoffs, but you know, these jeans are ratty. So I'm going to cut them off. They're going to look cool. Uh, it turns out the Vatican has a strict, no cutoff jean policy. And I had to sneak in to the Vatican, which I just thought was a bit, I was like, come on, be accepting guys. Like, you should be open. And, and I, I, it was probably the last time I prayed in that context. Cause I thought if I was ever going to have an actual moment of clarity, like perhaps praying in the Vatican as to what I should do would be it. And you know what? There, there wasn't, there wasn't anything telling me that I needed to, to stay there. Um, so, so yeah, that and t- to circle back, like in terms of bubbles, I, I've always said that bubble. Sure, things come from small town bubbles uh, in general too. I think just the lack of diversity um, that comes with most towns in the Midwest, even the the, the second largest city of Cedar Rapids. Uh, we, you know, I, whether it was, you know, people of color or people of different religions, people of different um, handicap background, like we really didn't have a lot of any diversity. I mean, I tell the story all the time of that. We all knew like the one homeless person. Like there was only, as far as I knew, there was only one homeless person in all of our city. And he would, and admittedly, when we were younger, we would make fun of him. We, you know, we would, we, he, he rode this bike up and down Wilson Avenue and he didn't know how to change the gears on it. So he was already always pedaling so fast, or maybe the bike was just broken. We don't know. Uh, so we, I remember mocking this man in the school bus as we would drive past him and, and, and obviously terrible thing, you know, but you're young, you're you're still trying to figure life out, but man, looking back on that, the bigger thing is like, we had one homeless person go to any of like, that is such a huge deal to, to give you a different perspective on, you know, bigger cities and, and probably a reality that affects more people than just the 120,000 people in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. So. All right. Love it. Okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about college. So um, you went to Cornell. I think you told me that uh, before we hit record, which my freshman year, I went to central and Pella. Uh, okay. So that's uh, Pella. Uh, is not too far, uh, or Central College is not too far uh, from Cornell. Uh, so talk about life at Cornell College. It's a very well-known college, at least in Iowa. I think it's a, a private liberal arts college. Is that is that correct? Um, yep. And yep. then just talk about what you studied, some of the things that you learned being away from, from home and in college, and uh, just walk us through those uh, four years, if you don't mind, Dustin, if you were there for four years, uh, I was there for four years, and but I guess I'll I'll first say so. Our ages, we definitely crossed over. So I would have been a junior or senior when you were a freshman. And did you did you play football at Pella? Did you play football? Uh, so so I just went to Central for one year. I did play football, uh, and then I transferred to the University of Sioux Falls in South Dakota. That's where I actually graduated. I went there for uh, three years. So. So you and I would have been on the same football field together at some point then, because, because really? I was a starting, I was actually, I played football and ran track at Cornell. I was the captain my senior year, but I was a starter at least by my junior year. So whether that was a home game or away game, you guys won, by the way, there's no, 
mystery about that. Yeah, we, we um, went undefeated in the regular season my freshman year and then got beaten the first round of the playoffs. But it was a it was a pretty fun year for sure uh, on that team. We we learned how to handle adversity at Cornell on our football team for my four years. <laughs> to say it nicely, we we had just amazing talent and amazing people. Um, and I, and I won't put blame on anyone we had, I, I feel we had some great coaches and great influencers and it just, it's just, it, we couldn't find a way to make it mesh for, to equal wins. We'll just say that, uh, there were a lot of positives that came out from our, our team, but yeah, you and you and I would have been playing, playing football on the same field at least once in our lifetime to make <laughs> yeah. that connection. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I spent, I went all four years at Cornell. Cornell is a cool school. So where they, um, they do a, it's called one course at a time. Uh, some people know of this. There's a, there's a couple different colleges in the country that do this. And so we literally take one class for what is it? 17 and a half days. And that's it. That, that's so one month. So it's essentially one month. And then, and you'll take this class anywhere from two to up to four, maybe longer hours in the day. And that's it. So it's usually nine to 11 and one to three are the the timeframes. Um, sometimes you'd luck out and you'd show up on day one and your professor is like, we're just a morning class and you would only meet from nine to 11 or we're just an afternoon class. You'd only meet for two hours. Now, if you had like a lab course, like a chemistry course, they were usually full, full days. And you probably even had more lab time you had to do afterwards. Um, but that was what was nice about it is that some months you'd have kind of less commitments and some months you'd have more. Um, I liked that system. Some people didn't like it. It's, it's similar to like a May term or a J term you might hear at other schools. They essentially do that, but Cornell would do it for all terms, eight or nine sessions. And, and so I appreciated that. And I like that. And like I said, I, I ended up playing football. I got recruited to play football for them, played football four years. Um, was the captain of the football team. I, you know, my senior year, which is, it's kind of a cool accolade to have under your belt. It's kind of a, a fun community and team to be a part of, uh, track and field. I played, so in college you have indoor and outdoor track and field. So that was, those are two separate sports. Uh, I was ultimately the captain of our track team, my junior year. And, and so did did that, you know, almost qualified for NCAA nationals um, in the 800. The 800 meters was my was my race. I also did some high jump. Uh, I missed I missed qualifying in the 800 by 37 hundredths of a second. That's that's a number that will be etched in my brain for all eternity. And um, but it was obviously a PR for me at the time. And in fact, the the day I ran it. I actually didn't have a good season like the most of my that rest of my season that year. For some reason, just I ran decent times, but it wasn't what I wanted. And I and I almost my coaches almost even told me to not run in this last chance meet that we were running at. It was actually at Iowa State that Iowa State has a 300 meter indoor track at Iowa State University. So we went and ran and, and you know, the, people didn't have high hopes for me. There was someone else on our team that they were kind of hoping was going to have some really good last race and and uh and I was just sort of an afterthought and I came out and just smoked my heat and just somehow had a, the best race of my career, uh, but still, still missed by 37 hundredths of a second. So, so again, I, I will remember that time. Um, and, and as for just the school itself, it's in Mount Vernon, Iowa. So Mount Vernon is a, is a smaller town, I think three or 4,000 total people. I think it's starting to grow a little bit. The school would add a thousand people 
every year. So, you know, the, for nine months out of the year, like it would, you know, town population would jump up. And, uh, and, you know, and that's another community side of things too. Just like you're the term townie, as I'm sure, you know, from Pella, like there's always the term townie of people who are from town, you know, from the local or the locals there. And, but you, you get to know everybody. Um, I was fortunate to actually get to live off campus for a few of the years too. Most people at Cornell, it's called a residential college. Actually, you're required to live on campus, but they, um, they do allow for some people to, to live off campus. I will admit that the reasons you can live off campus are usually that you, um, you know, you qualified in some lottery. So you got to go rent an apartment as a senior. I, I actually got kicked out of my dormitory my sophomore year for, we'll just call it an infraction. And it didn't help that I was also the resident advisor at the time. So I was the RA of, of this dorm. Um, you know, you make, sometimes you don't make smart decisions at that age and especially when some alcohol is involved. And, and so, but I've always, this is crazy side of like freakonomics of it all. They, I was being told, Hey, you can no longer live in the dorm. Uh, so you actually, we're, we're going to re put you in a different dorm, but I found a loophole that I actually did qualify to live off campus because Mount Vernon is only about. 18 miles away from Cedar Rapids. And one of the clauses they had in the bylaws was that if your home address on register on file was within like a 30 mile radius of the school, you could, you could live at home. So I lived at home and, you know, there's some quotes there. I don't know if this will be on video or not, but, uh, I ended up just crashing with some buddies who had an apartment down again, downtown of Mount Vernon, which is about three blocks away from the school. Um, and so I ended up living off campus for about two and a half years in an apartment above one of the businesses downtown. And that actually saved me money, like tens of thousands of dollars because turns out room and board costs at colleges isn't really market rate. And I would have just taken out probably, I think I've done the math. It was at least 20 extra thousand dollars in room and board fees that I would have paid that I ended up just, you know, I had to get a job and pay rent, but I got a job and paid rent. And I, and I've always looked back on that and like, yeah, there's an eye roll because I did something stupid and got kicked out of the dorms, but it, that stupid decision saved me a lot of money in student loans. So what did you uh, What did you study then while you were at uh, Cornell, Dustin? Uh, so I ultimately graduated uh, with majors in geology and environmental studies. And the environmental studies, I had an emphasis in marine sciences. So, and that was a different from you know to kind of parlay the upbringing. Um, I I went in. My proposed majors were religion and philosophy, and you know total one eighty went in with religion and philosophy basically took one, you know, geology course, totally switched term. Like I remember the day I sat down with my, my first advisor, professor Mueller, who was the religious religion professor. And there was this moment where he just realized he's like, I don't think this is what you want to keep studying. Is it? And because I, I actually, I did have, I took, like I said, the one course at a time, right? So you take the one. So my first class was speech communications. My second class was like a geo class. My, my third class was a religious class. So I did take the religious class and, 
And I think I wrote my final paper on basically why some religions are made up, you know, like I was, I was at that point in my life, you know, I was, was kind of creeping that, that mindset over. And, and so, yeah, we, I switched my advisors to, uh, uh, to a guy named Greenstein and, and Ron Denniston and Ben Greenstein and Ron Denniston, um, who were the geology professors at the time. And, and I've sent, you know, I af- basically learned that Cornell has, it has a pretty cool history with regards to geology courses. It was actually the, or just sciences in general. It was the first college west of the Mississippi to teach an evolution course, you know, back a hundred years ago when that was big taboo, especially in small town Midwest cities, right? Like can't, can't not talk about anything but creationism. And so, and they even had a whole building dedicated. It was called the Norton geology building. Like, I mean, there's only seven total buildings on this whole campus and one was dedicated to geology. And, and so I, I had a, I was very fortunate. I had a great, you know, real small classes, a great opportunity to work one-on-one with a lot of my professors. Um, it helped that one of the themes for my freshman year was extraordinary opportunities. It was it was a marketing theme for Cornell at the time. And so they were trying to really promote what are some extraordinary opportunities. Well, a lot of the class trips that you could take with some of the geology classes obviously fit, you know, that to a T. Like we had a class to go to New Zealand. We had a professor doing research in Australia. We had, you know, all of these trips are the extraordinary opportunity. So, um, so they were funding those pretty well. It was my understanding. And, oh man, I lucked out. Like I, again, I took that first geology class. So like my second or third class ever in college, the professor came up to me, Ben Greenstein. He said, Hey, you're pretty good at this. You want to go study coral reefs in Australia with me next year? And that's it. That's how that happened. I, I got to do a complete independent study project living on a beach on Western coast of Australia, studying coral reefs. I mean, this is, you ask people who go to bigger universities and bigger colleges and, you know, they try to get into these programs and like, it's just there's so those opportunities aren't available. And I was just, it was just handed to me and I was very fortunate for that opportunity. And, and so I did, I, I ended up going on the New Zealand course, um, studying, you know, basically plate tectonics and, and, and how that affects, you know, the island of New Zealand. I did the course in Australia uh, we ultimately, we went down to the island of San Salvador in the Bahamas. Uh, I did a beach dynamics study down there and yeah, just really great opportunities. My, my college experience is just something that clearly set me on a good path for the rest of my life. And I know that's not the case for everybody. Um, especially, you know, it was more, more pricey, you know, going to a private college like that, it comes with a higher price tag. Again, fortunate, some things in my life um, made that I, I did get a lot of scholarships for just grades that I had. Um, I, and I'll be completely upfront. We, I was fortunate that my, I shouldn't, I won't say fortunate. My parents got divorced my senior year of high school. So we were actually, I actually had to move out of my house my senior year and live in an apartment with my mom and my sister. My two other brothers were already gone. And the fortunate side is, my mom being a single mother filing filling out a FAFSA form qualified us for a lot of funding. Um, there was a $4,000 Iowa tuition grant that we got. Uh, there was, you know, all these things that came with that. And then actually, but the big one was, so my dad who worked for Quaker Oats, 
my senior year of high school. So when my parents were splitting up my senior year of high school, Pepsi, PepsiCo bought out Quaker Oats, which then made all the Quaker Oats employees, children be available for the PepsiCo scholarship that they offered. And I ended up getting like $24,000, I think, to from Pepsi. And, and I kid you not, it was like a threefold pamphlet that I hand writ out, wrote out. You know, I wish I would have spent more time because I only got the second tier. I could have gotten like thirty or thirty-five thousand. Um, but you know, I I filled that out with the hundred other scholarship application forms I remember, and then just came home one day to a letter in the mail saying, "Yeah, we're going to give you three thousand a semester. Just write a thank you letter to the to the CEO every year." I think that was it. Um, so there was a series of events that lucked out to give me some better, I mean, I still left with some loans, but I, you know, I was able to, to decrease that burden a little bit. And, um, and maybe that, maybe that is a reason that I really do think my college experience was just the greatest. I'm sure if I had left with $120,000 in loans, as opposed to the 20,000 that I had, maybe I'd have a different perspective, but, um, but that, uh, yeah, that I always I, I try to stay as much involved as I can with Cornell moving forward. Um, they they were just an amazing opportunity for me. So very cool, Dustin. Okay, so let's talk about um, getting out of college. Uh, what was life like for you immediately after you graduated college? Uh, what what job did you have? Jobs did you have? What career path did you kind of start down? Um, and I kind of want I want you just to kind of walk us through that evolution of, you know, right after college, what were you doing to pay the bills? What are you doing current day? Because I'm pretty sure, you know, you're you're not making all your money off of, uh, you know, the two books that you've written. Uh, not so, even close. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe uh, someday. But um, I just want to paint the reality of like, hey, I'm a career guy. This is this is the the path I've taken. And then you know, we're going to get into being an author, writing your two books, um, and the reality of that. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of, we'll di dissect, uh, you know, falling in love with the process, but, um, career wise, let's, let's talk about that. And then we'll kind of get into the, uh, the authoring. Yeah. Um, the, again, fortunate for Cornell college in that my, my senior year, uh, a new professor, Emily Walsh came on, and she had done some TA work at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And she had some contacts with some of her old students that were working in the, the environmental consulting field. And so I had decided that I didn't want to go on to grad school. I was ready to get a job. So I, literally just an email connection got me in touch with a gentleman out in Santa Barbara who worked for a company called Geocentech Consultants. And um, his name was Dave Zell. And I mean, Dave is a friend of mine to this day. In fact, I just signed a book for Dave that he had purchased for me, you know, and I hang out with him at least once a year on a backpacking trip. But but I was able to to get a job with a consulting firm right out of college, uh, which was fortunate. Like, again, I it's in the moment. Sometimes when things fall into place, you just kind of like this is how it's supposed to happen. Like I put in the work this. And so I, I, I try to, one of the biggest things, especially in the last five, 10 years is to acknowledge, like there was a lot of just privilege that kind of went into that. I, I worked, I don't, I'm not going to say I didn't, there wasn't hard work involved, but so many people work their butts off and just sometimes the opportunities don't present itself. But I had, I was very fortunate to have all these things fall into place. 
Uh, so, you know, I went to go live in Santa Barbara, which is one of the most beautiful places of our country. And I was making, oh, $43,000 at the time. And at the time, that was pretty good money, especially coming from Iowa. Um, it was probably the most amount of money I could make with an entry-level position at the in that field. But what I didn't take into account, and this is kind of that small bubble thing we talked about, is that I was going to have to live in half of a garage and pay over $1,200 in rent. And that was a good deal in Santa Barbara at the time. And we're talking 2006, right? Like I was so fortunate for that half a garage that had a tiny thin wall between the other half that was somehow owned by a different guy. It was the same structure, but they, they own. And so he rented it out to somebody. That was a very thin wall. Um, yeah. So, you know, you may, I, and I remember my grandpa too, at the time, like he, he sometimes didn't always understand, you know, some of the new education that can't, he, he was a big fan of education technology, but, um, you know, he just didn't understand it sometimes. And, and, but hearing that I was going to make $43,000 in a year, you know, he's a small farmer with, or was with 110 acres of land that was going to be more money that he made in any year of farming. Right. So he, he might've had questions about this whole college thing for four years, but then it's when he saw that, like how much money it made, he's like, Oh, okay. So that's, that's good. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, but that was, I was doing some field geology work, uh, for the, for the consulting firm. So a lot of soil samples, groundwater samples. Um, I mean, Santa Barbara is beautiful and that's where I lived, but a majority of our client base was actually down in Los Angeles. And so the biggest client that we I worked on for projects was the Unified School District down there, LAUSD. They were building uh, a lot of new education centers um, or uh, or had already built them and had remediation efforts and works that needed to be done. Uh, and so there's a lot of, you know, lead contamination there. You know, lead-based paint was painted on houses back in the 50s. It chips off, it rains, it leaches into the soil. Kids eat soil. So you can't build an elementary school on top of lead contaminated soil. That's kind of a cliche reality of, of some things. And, um, and also, you know, like there's just naturally occurring methane and hydrogen sulfide in Los Angeles. You know, that's why the La Brea tar pits are kind of down there. There's just all these things that need to be mitigated and remediated before buildings can be built. And especially when it comes to schools, obviously there's a little more scrutiny with that. But yeah, that, I had worked on a, a bunch of projects. Um, and so I feel pretty, pretty proud. My final project with that company was a place called the Roy Ball Learning Center. It was a high school, at literally downtown Los Angeles. And it was, um, it, it, we, we had siphoned off, the project had siphoned off a chunk of the property to actually become a park called Vista Hermosa Park. And so part of my job was kind of doing some of the final testing on that to ensure that they had mitigated any, you know, methane or hydrogen sulfide gases, uh, which we had. We had installed all these great systems and checks against that. And and that park was actually the first public park in downtown Los Angeles in over 100 years. So that's kind of a that's kind of a fun final stamp bullet point for that project and, and that company um, working in that first job. So. So then uh, where, where did life kind of take you career wise after uh uh, they're in Santa Barbara working for that company. So I then, um, to give a little back. So one of the things I almost did at Cornell was I almost switched majors my senior year to education. I, 
I appreciated everything that geology and the sciences opened my mind to. I mean, geology, talk about something that can expand your mind, especially if you were like a conservative religious person. Um, you know, geology is all about observation and looking and, you know, like compared to other sciences where most other sciences have, uh, you know, a, a scientific method, a process, they run a test that you get results with geology. You're just living in the results and you get to just say, Hey, here's how I think this happened. Um, that was the bigger benefit to me, I think with geology, but I think my passion kind of lied in education and teaching. Um, I just really... I enjoyed working with, with children. I really did. Like it just, I had done different reading programs um, where I would go down to the local elementary school and read with them over lunch period. I would just all these things that honest to God, like you talk about finding something that you're passionate about. Like I truly did feel something extra whenever I did that, those types of, you know, volunteer work. So I almost switched to education, took a few education classes my senior year, but just didn't quite pull the trigger. But after two or three years with that first consulting firm, I was kind of feeling like this wasn't what I needed to do. So I ultimately moved to uh, Denver, Colorado, for the first stint of being in Colorado. Uh, one reason is that a, a lot of my Cornell friends lived in Colorado, like I like like forty or fifty some odd Cornell graduates were either from Colorado originally or relocated there afterwards. So we had a pretty huge contingent, a, a nice social network there. Um, but and so that's just that's why I chose that location. But then once I got to Denver, I started exploring ways to to get my teaching degree. And so I got my I ended up getting my alternative teaching license in Colorado, uh, which is something you can get. And I actually got accepted into a master's program. And I was again, weird butterfly effects. I was, I was like one week away. They had offered it to me and they just said, Hey, we need your background checks to come in, which my background checks were all clean, but there was like a nine month backlog with the state of like processing fingerprints and doing background checks. So they, the school was like, Hey, sorry, we can't actually like, you're our number one choice, but we can't let you start the program without this. So we got to take the next guy. Cause his, he had already done all that stuff. Cause you know, I was just trying to get paperwork in as fast as I could. And so I didn't, didn't get my master's in it. And, but I ended up finding, getting offered a job working for uh, a nonprofit called the Greenway Foundation doing environmental education with the Denver Public Schools. So literally teaching six hours a day with a group of students, five days a week. Um, we were at, we were outside at public parks. So we had, we had a different set of curriculum depending on the park and the age group. Uh, it ranged from environmental education, like, you know, what types of animals can live in what types of habitats up to even doing water testing with our fifth graders. But then we also incorporated uh, just local history and how that played a role in the environmental impacts. You know, Denver has a huge gold rush history, a huge gold mining history and and how that, you know, played a role in the development of Denver as a city. So it was, it was all kind of geared around urban and like urban environmental education. Like how do you appreciate your environment in the city? Like you, you sure in Denver, you can see the mountains away and that's great. There's so many programs out there that want to take kids on an excursion to the mountains. And that's awesome. But not all kids are going to get up there. Not all kids have that opportunity. So how do we find a way to present ownership over your environment in a city? And so I, I really appreciated that, that side. And they're still teaching those same things today. So 
Yeah. So I, and I was with that company, that nonprofit for a couple of years and, but it was still right around the housing collapse time. And, and so at least what they told me, I don't know how true everything is. It doesn't really matter at this point, but like they told me that the funding was down for a year. So they had to, to downsize their, their positions. Um, Cause they, you know, they were based off of mostly grants and donations. So Turns out when the entire world economy economy collapses, then people stop donating money. And uh, so, yeah, so that's uh, right after the two and a half year point with that. I was told I wasn't going to have a job again. And that was when I was like, well, I guess this is a good time to move to Hawaii. So then I moved to Hawaii for two years. Um, you know, it was like serendipity. It was like my lease in Denver was up on a, on a day that I had found a flight that I could afford with the amount of miles I still had in my mileage account. And now, and if you've listened, like I made decent money in California, but that was all going to rent and living. But then I switched to, you know, working for a nonprofit, which was like, means I was making nothing and working you know, I was working part-time jobs. In addition to that, I, I even managed, uh, I worked for a property management company solely because I got free rent to do that. And now today in Denver, that sounds amazing, but free rent back then was like $650 a month, which was still nice. But that same apartment today is like $2,000. But um, but yeah, so I, I was just trying to, you know, find ways financially to make all that work. But But then when that job ended, my identity, like I, I had become kind of a known in the community because of that job in downtown Denver. Um, you know, we had promoted races, like part of our part of it being a nonprofit is we did events. And I was one of the events was a road race. So as a runner, I became the co-chair of this road race and was out pitching this. I mean, I would give presentations to 500 students in a school to get them excited to sign up for a road race. And so in addition to people coming to you on classes, I, I was definitely out in the, you know, in the world promoting this company. So I felt pretty, my my identity in Denver, I felt kind of tied to this role. And when that was coming to an end, it was tough. It was definitely tough. And so I, I kind of felt like maybe I needed to a fresh start and get away. And so Hawaii became... The thing, I don't I don't really know why it was just an island. I, I think maybe I was reminiscing and romanticizing about some of the stuff I had done in college, you know, just three or four years prior. Uh, I said getting to be in San Salvador and Australia and getting I was like, maybe it's time to go live on an island again, which. Sounds ridiculous, but awesome. And 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 so, yeah, I again, tried made it work, found, got a got a free one way ticket the day that my lease ended ended up getting, I, I had a job working with uh, kids with disabilities in some of the local schools in Hawaii already set up. So I had that set. Um, yeah. And just found a way to get my foot in the door. But ultimately in Hawaii, I, I got with a company, another organization called the Lahaina Restoration Foundation. And that's um, their historical society. So not really edu their education, but in a different way. Uh, they managed and rebuilt and restored a lot of the the historical places in Lahaina Town, which, if you are aware, is the town that was decimated in the fire of these last summers. So that was kind of tough for me, watching all those fires happen, because my two years in Lahaina and Maui were literally 
working side by side and inside some of these beautiful museums and place. In fact, one of the main buildings you saw on some of the, the, the photos that were being passed around, the aerial photos, was of a museum that was right on the water. And that was called uh, the Lahaina Heritage Museum. And that was that was my sort of final capstone project. I actually was one of the assistant curators and built a lot of the displays and curated a lot of the displays in this museum. And I tell you what to see. And I actually talk about that in my first book, because my first book kind of gives you this whole history as well. It's kind of a build up to why I decided to hike the Appalachian Trail. And, and so I talk about working on that project in that book. And so now to see this whole city just decimated and to, to quite literally see into the top of this museum that I spent so much, you know, blood, sweat and tears working on, that was tough. Um, so then uh, career wise after Hawaii, uh, what did you kind of pursue? And then what are you kind of doing career wise current day? And then I want to just really uh, dive deep into uh, the books, uh, Dustin. Sure. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if there's a term for in terms of career wise, what was next, but I think uh, vagabond living in the woods. Is that a is that a, is that a correct? Yeah, why not, man? Why not? <laughs> uh, dude. So Hawaii, yeah, Hawaii ended in this, like Hawaii was fantastic. Again, built great networks with people, but it kind of, it kind of just sort of had this, uh, this end point that felt like it was a good exit time for me. You know, I, with all of these, it might, it might sound like, Oh, I'm a flight risk. I just don't want to be places long. I have commitment. Honest to God, like I've always looked back and I, I've only, I've only left places or pursued something else because the the series of things just was not right for me to stay. You know, I, I use this cliche kind of five bullet points of like your your friends, your family, your significant other or dating life, your job or what you do for a living. And then, you know, sort of where you live, whether it's a house or apartment, blah, blah, blah. Those five things, you know, the combination of five, those five things kind of determines your overall happiness. And and if, you know, two or three of the, or the majority of those things are in play, like you could have the best job in the world, but if you have a, you know, not great social network and your living situation is crap, like you're not going to want to stay around. You got to make a change. And, and so I just kind of felt like it was time to make a change. And for me, a big component I haven't even touched on was just personal relationships, you know, like. I, again, grew up small town and I thought that I should have been married with a white picket fence with three kids by the age of 22. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, even be, I mean, throwing the, the Catholic guilt on top of that of like what I should, for being a good Catholic, I need to go forth and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. And, and I mean, it's just terrible phrasing, right? That's a terrible phrase. Uh, but I, I'd had some relationships not work out to that point. And, and it was hitting me. Like I was dealing with some mental health stuff. This was kind of pre mental health being something that we're now okay talking about. Like I, I struggled immensely. I, I had a relationship that in Hawaii, it was somebody that had actually moved out from Colorado to be with me. And that ended there. Um, and it, and it ended in ways with reflection now, it was like, yeah, I, I wasn't ready to be in that. Right. I can look at that now and say, Hey, like she was great. She was amazing. And and if I were to ever say 
think of there of there being one that got away type of thing, you know, like that's one that kind of always jumps in my mind. And, but also that I'm a completely different version of the person I was then. And I kind of didn't like who I was. I wasn't even sure who I was back then. And so hindsight's great, but man, in that moment, when that relationship ended, that was, it, it hit me hard and it made me kind of rethink everything. And I was creeping up on turning 30 at that time. And here I was going to be 30, right? Ooh, the big three. Oh, I'm so old, right? 29 year olds thinking they're going to be so old at 30. And, uh, and I wasn't married, wasn't even dating anybody. No, no kids. My jobs, I actually looked back and I really love my resume history, but you know, compared to maybe some other people in their thirties, like, was I, you know, I was, I was comparing myself to people like, was I on track? And, you know, I'm, I manage my finances, I think, very well, but I've I've also just never made making a lot of money a priority, right? From majoring in environmental studies, right? Clearly, that was not making money wasn't a priority, even though I made decent money afterwards. You know, work going, just giving even up that career path to go work in a nonprofit. It like the money side never really bothered me. Like I need, like I'll make that work, mm-hmm. and and I did. But that I'd be lying if maybe that stuff starts to creep in your head a little bit, especially when you turn a milestone age like 30. And, and you, you know, I, I don't want to say that me not making a lot of money was why I wasn't in a relationship. I absolutely don't want to say it, but it's a component of it, right? It, it The ability of me to financially afford a life that can include another person in my life Cause I'm fine sleeping in a tent in the woods. I'm fine sleeping in a, in a studio apartment that works for me. That's, you know, some people just, it, that's not going to work for them. And, and it's not a good or bad thing, even though that's hard to think about it at the time. Uh, so again, yeah, that kind of all played into some, some mental health struggles, trying to figure out who I am, who I wanted. So I, I decided the best way to deal with all that was to sell everything, get down to a backpack and fly to Georgia and start hiking the Appalachian Trail. So that was that started that component of my life is as that would have been 2014. You know, I I came back to Iowa for a stint. You know, I kind of made a little little tour of it. I came back to Iowa. That was actually during that whole polar vortex winter they had there. You know, I was, I stayed inside my mom's basement for like two straight weeks. So I was like, I'm not going outside, but I just prepped my, you know, I bought my sleeping bag, prepped all my camping gear. I'd been backpacking with some buddies for, you know, 10 years leading up to this point in Hawaii. I had backpacked all through the volcanoes that they had there, Haleakala National Park in Maui. Um, they have a cool network of, of backcountry tent sites and trails there. You can literally hike through the volcano. It's crazy. Um, and so this is what I was going to do. And I actually then made another stint in Denver. I think I went to Denver for like a couple of weeks and crashed with some friends, you know, don't know why I did that. That was just because I could. And and then, and then went and lived in the woods and I mean, to not, that that's a whole story of itself. I mean, there are hundreds of podcasts and other books out there and, and tons of resources about Appalachian trail, community, hiking, life, all that stuff. And it's all, it's all true. It's all amazing. Like you, there's an amazing community of people. There's also some crazies you might meet out there. 
for sure. But that's that's part of the experience then. And and so, yeah, man, some of those people who I met on the trail for those first four months, um, you know, I'm still friends with today, still keep in touch with today. People come from all sorts of walks of life that are there. So, I mean, truly, like if you're dealing with some stuff in your life, in your head and you want and you want to think about it, like there is somebody who just lost a job, just got a job, just got married, just got divorced, just had a kid, just bought a house, just is work is doing this on their two week vacation. And it's the only two week vacation they take every year. And they do another section of the Appalachian trip there. If, if they, if you want a case study or an example of why there's never going to be a good time to do anything different in your life. So you better do it now. The Appalachian trail is it because, you know, it's such a cliche thing of like, Oh, I'll do that when I pay my school loans off. I'll do that when my kids are out of school. I'll do that when I'm making this much money. There's never a good time to go live in the woods for six months. So if you want to do it, you better do it regardless. Just make it happen. And and so that that obviously was such a cool life experience. And for me, I suppose I won't completely ruin, but this book has been out for three or four years now. But I uh, I got 1,500 miles into my hike. So I walked over 1500 miles from Georgia, made it all the way up to Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And in terms of kind of a, probably the first big traumatic hurdle in my life beyond some, you know, other things that might've happened younger. Uh, I ended up having a rare heart condition hit me while I was on the trail from a, from a rare form of Lyme disease, actually. And I know Lyme disease is kind of a more popular subject in some health circles and, and podcasts and stuff these days, but they, it, one of the things that Lyme disease can do is it can affect your heart and put you in what's known as a, as a heart block, which is exactly what they, they put people, put pacemakers in for. So it's essentially with every beat of my heart, my upper chamber wasn't connecting with my lower chamber. So it was an electrical problem. And this is purely from, I got bit by a tick somewhere on the trail and I was fortunate in that it, it, I got a rare case that hit me really fast. So kind of what happens to a lot of people with Lyme disease is they don't know they have it for a long time. And so it kind of festers in their system and they don't do anything about it. But this hit me so hard. Like I, like I remember, vividly remember the night that I was like, oh my God, my heart feels weird. My heart feels something's off. And my, and he, you know, I've been hiking over a thousand miles. Like I've been paying attention to my body. My, I'm in the best shape of my life. And, and so for a two or three week period, my heart just started getting worse and worse. And finally, like I could barely take, you know, a few steps without heavy breathing. And again, I'm in the middle of the woods when this is happening. And sometimes you're 20 miles away from a road crossing. And so you're like, I better figure this out. And I end up going, spending about nine or 10 days in Pittsfield Medical Center. They actually wouldn't, wouldn't let me leave because they were too scared I was going to just walk back into the woods, which was probably true. But uh, so that kind of that diverted my life. That was that was a big diversion of my life, which actually brought me back to Iowa because they didn't. I, I mean, I was by myself with a bag in a part of the country that I've never really spent time in and. They're like, we need somebody, you know, to come pick you up before we can discharge you. Like I actually, they legally couldn't have discharged me until my heart block was gone. 
but they, if I had somebody to come get me, they said, Hey, you're still in like a second degree heart block versus a third degree. And, um, and so we can release you and you can continue your care elsewhere, but like you, you have to stay here if you don't have that. So my mom and sister road tripped from Iowa out to Massachusetts, picked me up, took me back. And, and as much as the trail had been this thing for me to kind of reset my life and rethink being forced to move back to your hometown when you had no intention of ever moving back to your hometown, that messed with the mental health and psyche a little bit, a little bit. So, so that's kind of how I found myself living back home as an adult in my thirties for the first time. Um, which again, how, how long do we have? Do we have nine hours for me to dive into? <laughs> it's your story, man. I, <laughs> I I'm, I'm loving, I'm enjoying it. Keep going. Um, but yeah. And so that, that's what brought me back to, to Iowa. And, um, and I, I, for about the next year, year and a half, I had regular appointments with cardiologists. I, I was trying to, nobody really kind of knew what to do with it. You know, the heart is this funny thing that you can, you can monitor it in only so many ways. And, there, and there's only so much, I mean, there's like heart transplants, which actually isn't what this problem is meant for. And then there's pacemakers, which is what helps this thing. But then after that, it's kind of like, well, just pay attention to your body and what you eat and maybe it'll get better. Like we can, that's it. And so it's just, it was just this big, you know, again, mental hurdle that just, you know, I'd wake up some mornings and be like, what was this? Is my heart? Okay. Do I got to go to, my, should I call my cardiologist? Was that, is that, is that the one that's going to kill me finally? So thankfully after about a year and a half, uh, we were able to get with like huge doses of antibiotics and just constant monitoring and some other things that they tried. Um, you know, we got that full heart block down to basically nothing. There's, there's still a little blip misbeat here and there I feel, but it was negligible. Like I, if I go get an EKG these, these days, there's, they're always going to say I have an irregular EKG. That's just, is what it is. But, you know, I was able to go run a 5k. I've been able to build back up my, my physical stamina. And then after a couple of years, um, you know, I was trying to build myself name for myself back in Iowa again, you know, I'd end up working for a small brewery and doing, you know, doing beer distribution. Um, if you're not aware, Iowa is a heavy drinking state. There's lots of beer, beer being drank and alcohol being drank there. Um, and, and it was good. I was actually, I, I felt I was kind of building a good life, but then that job kind of got taken away from me by surprise. Um, no hard feelings there anymore. It was a business decision they, they made, uh, but it was kind of a, it caught me off guard. And so once again, after, you know, two or three years, uh, my heart was better. I was kind of without a job and I was like, all right, this is not a place that I had planned on living so what do you do? Well, there's about 640 miles of the Appalachian Trail left that I haven't hiked yet. So I packed a bag, hopped on a motorcycle. I actually road tripped out to California to go do an annual backpacking trip with buddies in Santa Barbara. So to bring this all full circle, Dave Zell, the guy who I met through the connection at Cornell College, who I got the first job with, who is now a great friend and backpacking buddy. I did the annual trip with him and that was the first time I went back in the woods since the heart condition and I was fine. 
So that was my catalyst to then I ended up selling my motorcycle in California. Stayed out there. I, I was doing some house sitting for some people for about six weeks. And when that ended, bought a one-way ticket back into Albany, New York, grabbed a shuttle to Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and got back on the Appalachian Trail and spent the next six weeks finishing that thing. Wow. Wow. And I summited Mount Katahdin on September 12th of 2016 was my summit date, which is the final northern terminus of the of the Appalachian Trail in Maine. So okay. So I just I just want you to kind of wrap up this uh portion of your life experience with kind of sharing with us you know you you kind of i feel like and, and you mentioned this at one point when you were sharing your story but i just feel like i'm uh hearing that you're you're on this kind of this life uh exploration to find yourself so to speak right um so once you kind of uh, summited uh, that uh, that mountain, finished the Appalachian Trail, um, and like now at you, this point in your life, being 39, authoring a couple books, living the life that you're living now, Dustin, I mean, do you feel like you've found yourself or you have this identity that you are uh, confident in, or do you feel like that is an ongoing exploration within your life? It's an ongoing exploration. I, I think on some, and I'm embracing that. And I think at some point, I, I definitely thought there was kind of an end game, right? Like if I, maybe I need to have these transformation points to, to, to finally find that forever partner, right? Or to have that house with the white picket fence that I thought I wanted at age 22. And, and I guess that's the, that, that's kind of a point of life is that, you know, things aren't going to be what our expectations want them to be. We can, we can force them to be that we absolutely can make things happen the way we want. And if that's what you're looking for, awesome. But my life, my experience up until that point at the, on the Appalachian trail, I mean, it's a, it's a testament to, to letting life kind of happen, taking advantage of opportunities as they come and not forcing things too much. I could have, I could have easily stayed in Santa Barbara with that first job. Right. I had a I had a financial and my incentive, my job was good. I could easily be making a lot of money right now today if I had stayed with them for the last 15 years. Right. And things might have changed. And and I would have bought a house at some point, possibly. Um and but I but I didn't. I took advantage of an opportunity to pursue something new. And you can and some people, if your focus is only financially, you could say that was a dumb move. Yeah. Um I, I, I don't see it that way. Um, try, don't get me wrong. There have been plenty of times where financially you feel stressed. We all kind of deal with that. Um, and, but I don't think that's ever overpowered the, the life experiences that I've got by taking these opportunities. And so, so yeah, I, I think getting to the top of that mountain at the end of the Appalachian trail was probably an apex moment of like, I don't think there's one spot for me. I think there's going to be this constant learning, developing. I mean, it might be a, a bell curve that kind of flattens out a little bit. And so I probably, I was going through bigger changes, right? For those two to four years, that, that was a bunch of reflection and big changes. But I did sort of reach a spot where I wanted to be, but I, I knew that I could still tweak things. I'm still always going to make myself a better version 
Um, but I had also just been living in the woods for a long time and it's really tough to find a job <laughs> at that point. Uh, and so I, and I know you've asked a few times, like what I'm doing now, it's, I mean, there's still a lot that took for me to get from the top of that mountain to what I'm doing now. Uh, so I'll say I actually, I work, I live in Sa Sacramento, California. I I'm back in the environmental field. Uh, I work for the California department of toxic, uh, toxic substance control, which is a division of the California EPA. And my role is a, as an environmental scientist, and I'm, I'm doing more kind of backend data management now on some of these projects. So I'm dealing with the backside of those lab reports of all those soil samples and water samples that I used to collect earlier in the career. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at now, but to get here, like I still, still quite wasn't sure. Like I wasn't even sure if I wanted to continue work in the environmental field at that point. So and one of the one of the isms I always point out to people with that type of lifestyle is that the hardest part of that lifestyle is the transition. If you want to go from a backpack lifestyle, whether it's backpack in the woods or backpacking through Europe and go to living in an apartment with a nine to five job, that transition is one of the most stressful and financially difficult times but it's very easy to stay in your lane in one of those lives, which is why most people do it. And so even if you're making $0 living the life of a vagabond in the middle of the woods, you don't have any expenses. Yeah. <laughs> it's And then when you make a few hundred dollars on some part-time job, you still don't have any expense. So that few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars goes a long way and it's so easy to buy a one-way plane ticket somewhere else. And, you know, people have heard of hostels, right? And there's always this weird back and forth of what people feel of, you know, hostel hopping around different countries. And it's a very inexpensive, great community way of living cheaply around the world. And, and you know, even in some other countries, I was able to get an apartment for $200 a month. You know, I... I currently pay our shared rent with my partner and I is, is over $2,300 a month in California. It's a house. It's not an apartment. It's a two-bedroom house. Um, and you think about that, like I can either pay one month of rent here, but with that one month of rent, I could pay for an entire year somewhere, right? Now, now imagine if you didn't have your living expense for a whole year. What types of things would you do? Like, like it's such a mind change in how we evaluate resources and time. And it's very easy to stay in that life. So I stayed in that life for another year. So I actually bought a one-way ticket to Mongolia and lived in Mongolia for three months. Because again, give credit to Cornell College, a friend from Cornell was living and doing research in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. And her and I had said many times like she's like you always got a place to stay here and i was like well maybe if i have some time and some extra cash well i had some time and some extra cash and i bought a one-way ticket to mongolia uh so i spent three months there um when that visa that 90-day visa came to an end i almost stayed there i was actually maybe looking for more long-term stuff there uh it was easy to stay in that life you know bought another one-way ticket this one was back to Asheville, north carolina i had a friend there that i'd met on the appalachian trail um, that found me doing dishes for $11 an hour in the town of Cherokee, North Carolina, which is a casino town right on the base of the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. 
And clearly I didn't want to, my life wasn't meant to do dishes for $11 an hour in the basement of a casino, but it came with free lodging. And that's the type of things that you can do when you're living cheaply and out of a backpack. Uh, so then I was there for two months. And then after that, it turns out there's really cheap flights out of Atlanta down to Central America, and you can get a 90 day visa to Central America. So I lived in Honduras, Nicaragua, and El Salvador for over 90 days. Hmm. That then, okay, that's done. All right, let's buy a ticket back. And I had my buddy's bachelor party, New Orleans. That's what got me back in the United States. And that started another three months of me on a motorcycle. Ended up rebuying another cheap motorcycle because the bikes I bought only cost about eight, nine hundred bucks. The late 70s, early 80s, Hondas and Yamahas. But they can road trip all over the country. So... That's what I did for the next three months. So I just stayed, I kind of just stayed on the move, but all the while I was doing that, I decided I did need something else to be engaged with. And that's when I started writing external, my first book. So I, I wrote the manuscript for external while traveling from Mongolia to North Carolina to Central America. Uh, and then ultimately had to learn the publishing logistics to make that happen. That brought me on that motorcycle trip back to Denver. And that's actually when I believe you and I connected. Uh, Cause then I was in pure influencer mode. I had spent this life being a traveling person, posting amazing photos, meeting people, building up my Instagram follower count, you know, like everything you learn in any class about digital marketing. And I was trying to, to figure out a way to promote this book because that was, that was about, that was the only thing in my life for the most part. That was, I wrongly thought that I had, you know, nothing else going for me, but I was still trying to figure out kind of get past those mental health stuff. And, and the book gave me that. And I ultimately parlayed all of that. And I finally got, uh, had an opportunity to to interview for a pretty decent paying job again uh, back in the environmental field. And in that interview, all I talked about was how I started my own company, writing a book, selling books. You know, what, what, what have you been up to the last year and a half? I traveled the world and wrote a book. And it turns out that's a pretty cool story that the you know CEO of that company liked. And and even though it was only a, you know, potentially a temporary year, year and a half job type thing, um, that that catalyzed me into kind of getting out of my rut. And um, and then, you know, the pandemic hit and everything fell apart. So <laughs> that brings us up to 2020. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it, man. So let's uh, let's let's since you brought up the first book, um, let's let's just kind of. Um, unpack that. Uh, and then, uh, we'll start heading towards, uh, the conversational, uh, finish line here, Dustin. So the first book, uh, was about what, um, and then why don't you just talk a little bit about life falling apart, uh, when 2020 hit? Cause, uh, if I'm being very candid, uh, in our conversation today, uh, you know, 2020, I was actually living in Denver at that time. Were you in Denver in 2020 when COVID hit then? Yeah. Yeah. So that's where, that's where I had been in Denver for about two and a half years at that point, maybe three years actually. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, uh, I was living in Denver, COVID hit, I moved back to Iowa place, my hometown that I told people even on uh, another podcast that I hosted in, in the past when I lived in 
uh, Colorado previously that I would I would never ever ever live <laughs> back in Iowa and especially not in my hometown. COVID hit. I was in Denver, moved back to my hometown, uh, and you know I had some great opportunities over the last three years there in Iowa. Uh, I'm really grateful for them, but it was some very very dark, uh, difficult, hard times for me mentally, personally, all the things. Uh, so I, I get when you say, and I think a lot of people listening will relate and understand uh, when COVID hit, everything fell apart. So what was the first book about? Talk about the unraveling uh, when COVID hit in 2020. Lead us into uh, the book, um, Falling in Love with the Process. What's that all about? And then we're going to we're going to wrap it up. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've. I've sort of done a great segue in that I told you about uh, external. So that's the name of the the first book. It's called External Backpacking Through Life, both on and off the Appalachian Trail. So I it's an Appalachian Trail adventure book. It gives you every you know details my time through two thousand miles of the AT. And but I also uh, from a formatting perspective, I basically it's it's a life story. Like I every the way that I end up structuring that book was every other chapter. I gave a backstory to why I decided to hike. And then the next chapter would be hiking on the trail. You'd get days, miles, pinpoints, waypoints. And then after that chapter, there'd be, you know, the next step in the backstory. So it's kind of a memento. If you remember that movie, memento type of style. Um, and so where the two timelines kind of meet towards the end of the book. Um, and I really like how that came together. Um, so I tell you, I mean, everything we've talked about here, I basically give you some, uh, some backstories to me and, and to my life. And, you know, I, I think I started even way back in my elementary school days with kind of a, a sad story where I, I talk about, you know, wanting my life to end, um, you know, whether or not how proactive I was about that in that moment, being a, a younger person, but I, you know, I was struggling with not knowing if I had friends at the time and things. And so I, I felt like that was a good story to maybe kind of give a foundation to like, things don't always work out as we, as we want, which as I've told you with my Appalachian trail hike, that it's something that didn't work out how you think it did. Uh, so, so that's the first book that came out in 2019. I've done, you know, I've had that in bookstores across the country. I did it all solely under my own publishing label. I, I don't do any of it on Amazon. Um, for one, it allows me to sign every copy that ever gets ordered. So I think that's kind of a, a, a nice touch that people like. Um, and that was just a, a fun experience learning that whole publishing process. And so that rolled into what took me to the, to the pandemic in 2020. I was still kind of promoting this book taking digital marketing courses up until 2020, but I knew I was sitting on a second story. And the second story was what happened after the Appalachian Trail. I mean, I had a year of travel. I had three months in a unique place of Mongolia. I mean, this if if you want to talk about a place that still has kind of this awe and wonder in many people's eye, like Mongolia is this sort of last final frontier for a, for a lot of people. Uh, and it is. But it also is a place that has a city with skyscrapers and tall buildings, too. Um, and so I feel like just describing from a very traditional travel memoir type of perspective, travel book, uh, talking about traveling to unique places and, and living there. So the second book, Falling in Love with the Process, is details my decision after the trail, kind of picks up right there. 
I uh, spent the first chapter in Iowa, had to go back to Iowa to kind of regroup. I actually was still renting an apartment in Iowa at the Roosevelt Building. So some people might, Roosevelt Building in downtown Cedar Rapids, you see it right off of I-380 when you're driving. To, um, I lived in the, I call it the penthouse. It was the the 12th floor, the three windows on the highest floor you can see from the highway of the Roosevelt Building. That was, that was my, that was my castle for a year. Um and but I was still technically renting that when I had left and gone back to the trail. So I had to go and officially move out of that place. Um, and I kind of talk about and it was also uh, one of the floods was starting in 2016. There was another flood scare uh, and that inadvertently played a huge role in my butterfly effect of what happened in my life and how that things that play a little bit uh, into the storyline down the road a few chapters later. But then, yeah, I find myself in Mongolia, three months there, two months in North Carolina, decide it's time to finally write this book external. And so the second book is basically my experience of writing the first book, kind of why. So, yes, it's a book about writing a book, but it's a travel book that talks about, um, you know, another thing that happened during this time is that's when I stopped drinking alcohol. So 2000. When would that have been? 2016, end of 2016. Um, so it's right at seven years now for me. And I talk about how my feelings on alcohol and, and the consumption of alcohol in our lives and what it's meant for me personally with my family, experience with it, uh, with experience growing up in Iowa with it. Like, don't get me wrong, there's alcoholism all over the world, but alcoholism in the Midwest is a different type of beast. I, and maybe you you get this being from there, but it is just ingrained, you know, in every component of our, I mean, people, you know, who work white collar jobs got a cooler of beer in their car for the ride home. Like that, that's it. Like it's so ingrained that it's, it's kind of normalized and I don't want to, my goal isn't to demonize it. Like that's what I've learned is I, I don't have this. I don't want to sound like a preacher on some pulpit telling you that this is a sin. It's, I don't think that I just don't think that we should be, it should be the only option presented. And obviously with marketing and the way that the alcohol, the distribution arm of, you know, alcohol companies works like we, it is shoved in our face at every turn. And, and so this was me kind of like with coffee, how we started this conversation out. Um, I just, I kind of always knew at some point that was going to be something I didn't want in my life. And I, and I didn't. So if you knew me only in high school, I didn't drink for the first almost 19 years of my life. That comes with its own social advantages and disadvantages of a high school kid living in Iowa. Um, and so then college rolled around. That's the time to explore things. I started drinking. Uh, I joined a fraternity even, um, which we won't get into that, but the fraternities at Cornell weren't really like real fraternities. They they were, but you know, we won't get into it. Uh, and so then I drank for the next 13 and a half years, I think what it was. And then I decided to stop drinking again. And now I've not, not drank for seven years again. So I've drank for huge chunks of my life, not chunks of my life, being an adult, being you. And I tell you what, like I, I am very happy that I decided to just kind of cut that out now and i i had some excessive times in my life but thankfully i didn't have some sort of rock bottom moment you know i feel like for a lot of people it's an either or like you need 
you quit drinking because you hit rock bottom. And it's, it's almost like, because you, you couldn't handle it like the rest of us could, you let it hit rock bottom. That's why you don't drink. Or the other component is, Oh, you're a religious nut, right? You're, you're, you don't understand. And for, and another thing that I've learned is when I kind of tell people that, Hey, a, a catalyst for me to stop drinking was the heart condition that I experienced. I could still totally drink alcohol and be fine with my heart. But I just figured, hey, if there's one thing I can control that can help with better overall health, let's cut it out. But man, when I as soon as somebody wants to talk to me about this and they say, hey, you're oh, you had a heart condition. Oh, yeah, that makes sense, too. I would totally stop drinking, too, if I had heart. It's like they they want that reason. But to be honest with you, I stopped drinking just because I didn't want to do it anymore. There's definitely all these other component reasons that built up to it. But the final reason is I I wanted to see if there was actually a way to enjoy life and, and find enthusiasm in your in your life and be able to travel, right? Traveling is a huge place where people go to live a little and let go. And that's where they drink and let them and, and party. And it's like, well, how do you, I was asked so many times, like, how do you enjoy yourself on vacation if you don't drink alcohol? And this book while I was in Mongolia, I was still drinking in Mongolia. And then I ultimately stopped when I got to North Carolina um, and then stopped all through Central America. And I mean, if you talk to anybody about Central America travel, it's a bunch of people just partying. And so I was asked constantly, like, how are you even enjoying yourself? I was single at the time. I mean, people ask me, like, how do you expect to hook up with anybody? You know, hook up with any girls. You're not drinking, like, as if that was the re and my goal with that component of this next book is to just say like, you can still have a fun time. You can still be a single man and hook up and have sexual experiences with people. Even if you're not drinking alcohol, it turns out cups of coffee can also be kind of sexy. And, and obviously I gave that up now. Right. But so I, <laughs> um, and so that was my goal in not only telling this travel story for people who are either interested in just travel in general, living places a little more long-term, you know, if you have interest in Central American countries, check it out. Mongolia. A lot of people are really interested in my time in Mongolia. Um, and if you, and if the parts of when I talk about me not drinking can help influence you to also do that trip that type of trip. That's awesome. If the parts of me talking about the learning curve of writing and trying to figure out how to publish a book, that's awesome too. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's what this next book is. And the, the title falling in love with the process that was actually from a hiker I met in the middle of the woods on the Appalachian trail, because he, he said the phrase to me, you got to fall in love to the, uh, with the process. And now he was referring to this process of packing up your whole life every morning, putting it on your bag and walking 20 miles and then unpacking it and doing it all over again. You know, in his mind, like, if you don't love that process, you better get out of here because if, if your I, if your thing is you got to get to the end of this, if, if you think that getting to Mount Katahdin was, was the goal, that's not it. It's this process of making this happen. And, and that's kind of how I saw writing that first book and traveling to get out of that rut and quitting drinking. Like all of that was part of my process to get me into that, you know, that job that ultimately felt like it gave me more purpose. Hmm. And then the pandemic hit and the job ended. And I was, and so that's why I, I kind of finished with a lot of the marketing for external. Once that book came out, I was in Denver 
And I just, I figured, Hey, this is a good time to kind of cut ties here. Um, have a great network in Denver. I love, you know, I still keep in touch with those people there. I, it's sad for me that I haven't been back to visit as often as I want. Um, but that when the pandemic hit, that was me to say, Hey, I want to write that story now. The first book was, was the trail hiking itself. Now I want to write the story of, of how I made that happen and the traveling that took place to make that happen. Um, so that's what I, I was doing. I literally I kind of hopped in my car. I put everything in a storage unit. I was going to go potentially fly somewhere else. I actually had a one-way ticket to Columbia purchased. And my ticket was April 1st of 2020. And I slowly watched every airport in the world shut down that March. And when they finally closed all the airports and I already had my stuff in storage and I was down to the backpack again, I was like, well, hopped in my car. Drove around the, I, I road tripped around the country to a couple different spots. I would, Denver was still my home base. I would come back and exchange things out of my storage unit. I used it like a closet, and uh, and I was just writing the manuscript. And that that kind of took me all the way up, brought me back out to California. I was down in Santa Barbara for for a little bit, helping some friends out, some things down there, and then I reconnected with my partner Mara. And to just completely give Cornell College another one up, Mara and I lived three doors down from each other on the same floor our freshman year, Pfeiffer Hall, garden level. And, you know, we we definitely didn't date then. We didn't hook up then. We didn't, you know, she kind of went in her own circles. I went in my circle. And we sort of kind of, we didn't really interact too much after that but we that's where we met was freshman year of college and then we both went our separate ways for the next 16 20 years you know she'd actually been married twice uh and was mostly living in northern california i had done everything we've talked about during that time uh in fact we almost kind of crossed each other a few times but then 2021 she was down in pismo beach on a little road trip and I was in Santa Barbara and I was like, I saw some Facebook post, and I was like, Hey, you want to catch up? And that cup of coffee now led to the reason why I live in Sacramento, California. I work for the state of California back in an environmental position. It's why I have, you can see the camera, this dog right there. That's Tula who is, was her dog, but that dog is now so in love with me that she has to, that's why she's in here. She was, if I close the door on her, she'd be barking out there. And so my whole life, I mean, talk about falling in love with a process of things. I don't know. I don't think this is the end game of it, but that's what has led to me. I feel I'm in a, I really like my life right now. And I really like what has all of that built up to this. You know, I'm still not a homeowner. That's something in terms of what I know a lot of people hold on a pedestal. I don't. That's why I'm not a homeowner. I haven't really held that on a pedestal. Um, but, you know, I rent a two bedroom house now instead of a studio. Uh, I've been together with Mara for we're over two years now, living with a partner. We've been we've definitely had some rough times. I was telling you about this last year with some of the health issues, uh, but we made it through. And I I like my job now. I like my job environment. I feel I'm making an amount of money that, you know, gives me the opportunity to to still travel, still kind of, you know, keep that wanderlust alive a little bit. And it's allowed me to see the publishing logistics of this, of falling in love with the process 
to this point. So, and has led to me signing hundreds of books out in my living room right before I came in to do this podcast with you. So. Wow. Um, what a, what a, I mean, and, and, and you're only 39, dude. Like, I know I was having a conversation. <laughs> maybe it was a podcast conversation or just recently, uh, somebody, I think they were, uh, maybe a, they, they were maybe just 30 or something like that. And they're like, I, I feel like things are just getting started. And I'm like, I'm 36. And I'm like, I feel like things are just getting started. You're 39. Like God willing, there's so much more life and exploration ahead. If we are uh, intentional about that exploration and keep those open minds and those uh, open hearts to, to learning. Right, Dustin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Keep your heart open. Be open to new opportunities, new experiences. Absolutely. Cool. Okay. I want to end it with this because I'm very curious uh, to kind of bring everything full circle, your mom, your dad, your, your, your immediate family, what in the world do they think about Dustin and the story that you just shared with all of us? I mean, have they kind of accepted you like, well, that's just how Dustin is. Has there been some difficult times with maybe family members because they just don't understand what you're doing? Finish up with just kind of touching on that. Cause I'm, I'm curious about that uh, myself personally, Dustin. Absolutely. And I mean, to go along with the theme, like that has changed over the last 15 years since college too. Right. Um, you know, growing again, growing up in Iowa, there is, there's this expectations that you get your house. I mean, you can afford a home on a part-time job there. That's a different story. You get your house, you get your partner, you start your family, you have your kids and, and learning that it's not, they're not being demeaning always, right? When they're saying you should do this, you should, it's just how things work there. It's how it's, it's, it's worked for them. Right. Um, but maybe it didn't always work for them. And maybe I think as time went on, when I got into my thirties, especially when I started really traveling a lot more, um, you know, my, I think my mom especially started to kind of come around and saying like, well, this works for you. Like this is Dustin being Dustin, but there are some positive and, and don't get me wrong. She loves my other siblings and they're all their grandchildren they have given her. But I also think she likes when she gets to be with me and not have to have the grandchildren around too. Right. There's, there is a, a spectrum of things. And I think she, my mom to just stay with her, like she specifically has, has seen that value as she's gotten, because, you know, she split up with my dad and she's been single. She has been in a relationship though, with somebody for a long term, I think nine or 10 years now, maybe long, um, but not married again. So she officially is still, you know, like a, you know, check single on the box. And, and I think she has found value, especially now that she's retired too. And she's trying to fill her time and resources with stuff that maybe my way of life, it has more perks to it than, than originally saw. Um, my dad, him and I, like we, we, you know, we don't probably chat as much and our relationship was mostly sports talking about sports in our, in our life. Um, but you know, after he, Oh God, I'm going to Cornell college better pick. My dad is actually married to the woman who ran the, um, the, the Sodexo food services at Cornell while I was there. So after she left that job, 
they somehow met in Cedar Rapids and now that's my stepmom. So, you know, now that he's been with her and we've, you know, we've got to build a life with her as well. You know, there's, there was tough times, um, you know, especially with just the, you know, the alcoholism in our family, I'll just be blunt. And I don't think my dad would deny that. Like there's been times that he, that's been a, uh, a thing for him. Um, you know, we, I definitely stepped away from probably communicating with him as much as I could, but hopefully we're rebuilding that relationship. I think him and I are able to talk about these things, um, about life things other than just sports a little bit better. And, you know, my siblings are about the same too. They all appreciated it. They, they liked the stories they like. Um, and I, and so I, and I don't want to ever assume that somebody is either lying or not telling the full truth, but if, if anything, living this sort of non-traditional life, it, it does kind of spark an interest, I think, from some people. Like, let's say somebody did get that house and family and all stuff right away. I know they love their children and their family and they 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 find the positives. But this style of life that I have found myself living for 15 years, it's it sparks an interest, right? And I don't think it negates all the other things, but that's what keeps life interesting, right? And and for me, in the complete opposite, like people who live a traditional life, they've constantly sparked an interest in me. Like, I don't think I can ever fully shed that want from my my Iowa days of maybe wanting a more traditional life. And it probably explains why I'm, I'm currently with Mara in a committed relationship, living in the same place for two, over two years. Oh, my God, it's great. Um, right. Right. Who thought that got a dog, got a yard. Um, this is all kind of fascinating to me. Like, this is very interesting to me to try to build this life and still find ways to be excited about life. Like, you know, getting to plan trips with Mara is different than planning like trip by yourself. And some people could say that's a, that's a negative thing or a positive, but I've never done it. Like I've, I've truly never really planned a trip with somebody and yeah, it can get annoying, but it's, it's also kind of fun. It's a new frontier for me and I hope her and I continue to build this and I hope we continue to find a way to to really enjoy each other's company and and to continue being each other's best friends and and that's that is part of my next adventure right so if there's a third book down the road it's probably going to talk about this life and how I've meshed this together I still got to go travel somewhere I got to figure out some place to travel to make it worth no one wants to read a book about me hanging out with a boxer dog in sacramento for the 300 pages uh, maybe i don't know maybe there's a niche for that yeah. i don't know but uh but yeah in terms of like what family and friends i think there's always been that little bit of wonder lust from other people and sure there's been there's been some judging on both sides absolutely uh but that just comes with growing older and learning how to how to communicate with the people you love so yeah. Is, uh, uh, you know, um, talking about kind of the, uh, the I ideal, uh, you know, American dream in terms of, uh, what people think we should do, especially when you come from the Midwest, uh, having kids, is that something that you think about often? You never think about that kind of, you know, percolates through your mind every once in a while. Is that something? Cause you did touch on earlier about how working with youth and, and children really, did something different for you inside when you were uh, younger and, and you served in those roles. 
when you're younger is, is having like your own family and having kids at some point, something that you do, uh, want Dustin. Uh, again, it's a shifting answer, right? It's a spectrum that's changed in the last 15 years. Um, I, I working with the kids early on, I think was the thing that really reinforced me thinking that having a family is exactly what I wanted. And, and then that, you know, I don't know if you can, but like that, that those points have kind of crisscrossed, right? Like, like with enough time and, and living a life that didn't include that, like I saw value and perk of not having children. And again, like this is, you know, kind of a joke, but after you work with kids, like I've gotten a lot of kid experience in my life already. And I obviously will never, I don't know the value or the experience with having your own child, but I have, I have held many crying babies in my life and I have worked with many toddlers in my life. I have been covered in urine many times in my life and well, in, in the form of an educator. And that kind of has made me be like, you know what? If I didn't have children of my own, I think I'll be okay. And I, and as that has continued down, um, especially now that I'm in the longest relationship that I've been in, obviously the potential of what a family would look like, uh, we've absolutely talked about it. And I think both in both her and I are on the same page, like we would be open to it. It's more of a, we're not really against it, but we're fine if this doesn't happen for us. And there's always going to be, don't get me wrong, there will likely always be that moment, maybe 20 years from now, maybe next week, we're like, oh, maybe we would be nice. That happens. But I think on the whole, uh, I, I've become very content with the fact that this maybe shouldn't, isn't part of my life plan, right? There's no, it's kind of, kind of another mantra of like, there's really no rules, right? Be a good person, you know, be respectful, don't you know, lift others up when you can. But like when it, it, if you don't own a home or if you don't have kids, that doesn't make you any less than as a person. And, and I don't know how we translate that to the youth of our next generations that we shouldn't let all of these things put a lot of pressure on us. Um, Cause I did, I let it, I let those things be pressure points in my twenties and early thirties. And and it was tough and it made life a lot more difficult. And, and I feel very happy that I don't, don't have those pressure points anymore to some extent. <laughs> cool, man. Well, <clears throat> uh, we're not, we're not here to get into my story, but there's a lot, uh, that, that, uh, about you and your upbringing and your story that I can really re resonate with, especially Absolutely. being, you know, uh, now past 35 and single and no kids and no house. It's like, there are so much, uh, there are so many societal pressures and, and, and just like when people say, well, you know, are you, are you single? It's like, who cares if I'm single? If who cares? I'm here, if I have, like, who but it's just, it's, I I'm so thankful. And I, I, I'm sure you can agree with what I'm about ready to say. I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful for my story and, and for, for my experiences because they're unique to me. And uh, I have learned so much about myself. I've learned so much about humanity. I've learned so much about just life and the world. Uh, I, I wouldn't have it any other way, even though there are, I have my own mental struggles. I have my own uh, questions and, and, and tough days, just like all of us. That's a part of the human experience. But um, it just your story is awesome, man. I, I really appreciate you, Dustin, uh, being open, being candid, sharing. We're 
we're we're well past two hours now. It's it's really awesome, man. It's it's oh, resonated geez. with me, <laughs> and I'm sure it's going to resonate with a lot of the the listeners. So um, I just want to say thank you for coming on. Before I do a quick outro and I let you go, Dustin, I want to give you an opportunity uh, to share with all of us where we can pick up uh, uh, both of your books. Um, and then uh, if there's a place that is best for us to reach out to you, follow along, connect with you, if that's Instagram, Facebook, both, website, I want you to give us that. And if there's anything that you want to share in closing, any final thoughts, I'm turning the platform over to you. Then I'll do a quick outro and then we'll be out of here. But uh, whatever, whatever you'd like to share with us in closing uh, platforms, yours, Dustin. Thank you. Thank you. And for, and also thank you for reaching out to me to get this all set up. Um, I, as I said, I'm not really a podcast listener and into all that, but I, I pod, doing podcasts is obviously a great networking opportunity for people to get to know me. Um, honestly, this has been just wonderful getting to know you a little bit more. So, so thank you for, for, putting in the work to make that happen. Um, as for books, I've put them all, like I said, I don't do anything on Amazon for many reasons. Another, that's a whole podcast topic out of itself, but uh, you can get both my books at my website. It's just my name, dustinwaite.com. Um, and I pretty much use that same link to on all the platforms that mostly Instagram and Facebook, You either one, you can reach out to me. My Instagram handle is at Wody Waite, W-H-O-D-I-W-A-I-T-E. That was my old AOL inst uh, instant messenger handle to age myself. Um, but then on Facebook, just my name, Dustin Waite. Um, I'm sure he'll put that in the, the link or something. And, and yeah, and all the books come through me. So if I see it come through, like it's going to touch my hands, I'm going to sign it myself. It's going to, I'm going to put it in an envelope and send it to you. I, I like that connection I have uh, with the way that I've set this little side business up. And uh, in terms of anything else, honestly, I, we've been over two hours. I think these people have listened to me talk so much. And so if they're still here, I greatly appreciate it. And I thank the opportunity. So, awesome. all right. Well, thank you uh, so much, Dustin. And, and like you, you thank me. I just want to say you're very welcome, man. It was, it was an awesome conversation. So all of you who are tuning in to another episode of Curious and Candid, I just want to say thank you so very much. I appreciate you. I value you. And if you would like to connect with me, I'd love to connect with you. There's a couple places that we can connect. Uh, the first place is Instagram, Curious and Candid Podcast. Also, uh, if you want to reach out to me through email, that email is curiousandcanonpodcast at gmail.com. And then before you uh, leave us today, uh, please subscribe to Curious and Candid on iTunes. Leave us a five-star rating and review. I would greatly appreciate that. And if you are interested in holistic lifestyle coaching, you can check out my website, which is Awaken Training and Nutrition dot com again um thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of curious and candid uh with dustin Waite. um again i appreciate all of you and we'll catch you next time on the next episode <laughs>